If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to 1 Peter in chapter 1. We're going to look at, uh, really, verse 3 will be our focus, but we're going to read through verse 9. So 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. And if you got it, say, I got it. All right. Let's, uh, let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. God's Word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Last year, when we gathered together like this for Easter, we talked about two two-word phrases that I believe are among our favorites. And those were, what if, and if only. Phrases that cause us to look back, yes, and to wish things were different. And we talked about how the resurrection of Christ reverses our what ifs and if onlys. Today, we'll do something similar. I want you to consider another two-word phrase that we use very frequently. And this phrase this phrase bears a lot of weight, although I'm not sure we realize how much we say it. The phrase I'm referring to is this, I hope, I hope. We use this in a wide array of ways, don't we? From the trivial to the serious to situations that are life-altering. Think about it. I hope my team wins this game. I hope the weather is nice tomorrow. I hope I get into this college. I hope my kids are successful. I hope I get this job. I hope they notice me. I hope I find a mate. I hope we get this house. I hope the tests come back negative. I hope I see them again. I hope I make them proud. I hope they make it through this. I hope they know how much I love them. Hope is an essential part of our lives, whether we spend a lot of time thinking about it or not. Hope bears the weight of everything we do, what motivates us, what drives our decision-making, where we locate meaning in life, and how we respond to situations that we face. Victor Frankl is, is not a name I, I believe you're familiar with. He was an Austrian-Jewish psychoanalyst, and he spent three years in four concentration camps. The last one was Auschwitz. 
And after his release uh, with the liberation of Europe, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he talks about four different kinds of ways people in death camps behaved in relation to hope. He said some would lose hope and they would become brutal people. He said they, they would respond to brutality by being cruel and brutal themselves, even the nicest people. Then you had people who would lose hope to the extent that they would give up, that they would stop taking care of themselves. They wouldn't even get out of bed or get dressed or go wash or go to the parade grounds for inspection. He said, no entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They, they had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Well, the third type of people were those who said, essentially, if I just survive, I can get all my hopes back. So they placed their hopes on getting out and getting back to health and job and family and professional achievements. They hoped that fortune and position in society would be restored to them eventually. So if they just survived, they could get their hopes back. That was their hope. Well, after liberation, though, Frankel said many of them went home and found those things were irretrievably gone. And they went into deep depression for the rest of their lives. Their hopes had been shattered because it wasn't what they thought it'd be. But the fourth and final type of person, he said, was the smallest group of all. Only a few of the prisoners, in fact. He said those people kept an inner strength that raised them above their outward fate. What created the difference? He said those people had a hope beyond this life. They anchored themselves in a hope that neither suffering nor circumstances or death itself could destroy. They hoped for something beyond the world, and so even the worst of all circumstances was somehow more manageable because they looked at the now through the lens of the future. Do you see? All four had a relation to hope. How could they not? Some lost hope and became mean and nasty. Some lost hope to the point that they ceased doing even the most routine daily activities. Some hope for restoration of material prosperity to get the life back as it was. And when that happened, it was not at all what they thought it would be. But those whose hope was in the eternal, whose hopes rested beyond this life, were able to endure even amidst the worst circumstances you could imagine. Now, this is a question. These are the questions I want to ask you today. What do you place your hope in? At this very moment, what are you hoping for in life? What are you hoping for that you think, if this happens, life will be better? What bears the weight of your hope and is thus what you are truly living for? And here's what I want you to know today. There is only one place that can provide lasting, true, and real hope. I want you to know today above all else, that the only lasting hope, the only living hope, the only hope that could bear the weight of your life in every season, no matter what befalls you, Jesus accomplished via his bodily resurrection out of the dead, which thus secures resurrection for you if you give him your allegiance. All other hopes that you could possibly look to or put the weight of your life on are unsure, unstable, unreliable, and flimsy by comparison to this.
And while I mentioned we read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, our main focus will be just on verse 3. And let's, let's consider two points drawn simply from this verse, okay? Number one, living hope comes from God alone. And two, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Living hope comes from God alone through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Simple enough, you see that right there in the text. So first, living hope comes from God alone. Notice with me, if you look back at your text again or your bulletin, how Peter clearly shows that living hope comes exclusively from God by his divine initiative. This verse is utterly soaked in this truth. Did you see it? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, look, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to living hope. Is that not soaked in God's initiative and work? It is clear that God is the one who is to be blessed, extolled, and praised because it is God who has given the new birth according to what? It's right there in the text, isn't it? Does it say according to our ability? Does it say according to our loveliness, according to our goodness, according to our impressiveness, according to our deeds, according to our merit? Does it say any of that? No, it says according to his mercy and his mercy alone, his work and his work alone, his initiative and his initiative alone. Living hope can only come from something, someone outside of us. It must be provided to us, for we cannot achieve it on our own. We're utterly unable in our fallen state. That's what the word mercy means, right? It means it's unmerited. It means we deserve one thing, right? But receive something else from someone who is in a position to give it. And you know what the fact that God is the giver of this thing called mercy means, right? It means that our greatest need may not be what we typically think it is in the midst of our hurried and busy full lives. Again, think of, think of what we typically hope in and for. We hope for jobs, or a mate, or money, or success for our kids, or, or things like this. Why? Because we think our biggest need in life is to have this thing or that. We think, if I just get this right job, all will be well. So we place our hopes in that. We think, if I could just get my kid into a good college, then they'd make something of themselves and all, of, all will be okay and my parenting will be validated. We think, if I just get enough money, everything will be okay. We think if I just make it to retirement, I could live as I always wanted to, what I've always been working towards. We think our biggest need in life is if we just had something else, something more, something greater. Thus, those things are where we place in our, ho our hopes in. Why? Because we identify all kinds of things in life as our greatest and true need, to feel like life is worth living to find meaning and happiness and purpose and value. But what does Peter say? He's saying, in effect, what the rest of the Bible does. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to your creator, who you were designed to worship and have fellowship with, which means that in our fallen state, we are alienated 
from our God, whom we were created to be in relationship with. And he is where we are supposed to locate true meaning. Friend, listen to me. Your greatest need is not that you don't have enough money. It isn't that you need better health or a picturesque and Instagrammable family or enough success at your job or good reputation before men. Your greatest need is God and to know him and to love him and to worship him and to live for him. But there's a problem, isn't there? We, as mentioned, as the psalmist says, are brought forth in iniquity and in our natural state, we're far from him. There's this enormous gulf between us and God. Our sins, our uncleanness, our lack of holiness stands in the way. So the only way to reconcile to him and have our greatest need fulfilled is to have our sins atoned for. But there's the rub. You can't atone for your sins. Do you know that? If you had a thousand lifetimes to try to atone for your offense against God, if you made a million sacrifices of bulls and goats, you couldn't do it because during those thousand lifetimes, you know what you and I would do? We'd just be stacking up more offenses along the way. That's how lost we are. That's how needy we are. That's how rebellious, rebellious we are. So unless, listen, God makes a move towards us, we'll be forever lost. There'd be no hope for us. But Peter brings us good news, doesn't he? He says, God has taken the initiative to cause us to be born again according to his great mercy. What does mercy tell us? It tells us that we need free forgiveness. We need God's heart to be moved towards us. We need him to come to us apart from our own merit. We need him to provide salvation, not the way we are, but despite the way we are. We need mercy. We need God to act. We need him to provide a way to be in relationship with him. Otherwise, we'll be eternally lost without hope. Friend, you ultimately don't need better relationships. You don't need a put-together family. You don't need an impressive resume. You don't need a sweet retirement or for people to think well of you. You don't need an awesome house, a bunch of vacations, successful kids, or more leisure time. You need your sins forgiven by a merciful God so that you can live as you were created. Only that can give you living hope. That's why later in this chapter, in verse 18, Peter says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You may think you need more money or things, but Peter is asking, what will that ultimately get you? Ultimately, if you can't atone for your sins, it can't make you whole. It can't give you your greatest need, which is the new birth made possible through Jesus' blood alone. Just think about how Peter says that God caused us. Do you see that language? If we have Christ, to be what? Born again. This isn't something you earn. It's something given. He caused it, says Peter. And he must, we, he must if we're to have it. So you think of there's a famous scene in John 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus. You remember that scene? Nicodemus was very religious. He was a Pharisee. So he's like at the tippy top of piety and religion in Israel. But what does Jesus say? He tells him, 
Not even that. Not even just being religious is enough to save you. You must be born again. You must be born again. But Jesus says there, there that it must come from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit must come to you and illumine you and convict you and open your eyes to the truths of the gospel. He must make you new from the inside out. So we are so utterly unable to save ourselves that for us to be saved by God must be the one he, who takes the initiative from start to finish to produce new life in us. So you might even be thinking you're a Christian because you did this or that, because you are a good person, because you grew up in church, or because you go to church now, or because you try your hardest to be a good father or mother or son or daughter or citizen. But Jesus says, and Peter says, those won't do the trick. You must be born again. And that picture of new birth, of being born anew, stresses to us, yes, our inability to save ourselves and the utter reliance we must have on God. No one takes credit for being born, right? No, nor is it a cooperative effort where we do our part and our parents do their part. <laughs> it's something that happens to us, yes, being born. That's what Peter's saying and what Jesus was saying before him. So, for example, I have four kids and one on the way, and I've been present for all their births. And you know what? Not a one of my kids contributed to being born. Do you know that? They didn't do anything at all. Bums, right? They hung out in my wife's belly. The, the food was delivered to them. And the only thing they really contributed, if you can call it that, was morning sickness. And when the time came, they were delivered. And you know what else? People would congratulate me and Sila after the birth. They didn't walk up to the baby and extend their hand, right? Or try to give the baby a high five and say, congratulations on being born. Right? Nor did I put my face against my wife's belly before birth and say, okay, buddy, mommy is going to do her part, but you have to do yours for this to work, okay? Like when our son was born, he came out before the anesthesiologist got there. And so Sila delivered without the epidural. And so after, after he was born, I thought, wow, I, I can't believe my wife did that. That's incredible. I was so impressed. But I didn't walk up to my son while he was under that rotisserie chicken thing. You know that rotisserie chicken thing they put the babies in? And go, good job, dude, and then pat him on the back. Why? Because he didn't do anything. He didn't contribute anything. Salvation, the new birth, is all of God. Before the foundations of the world, the Trinity had planned that Jesus would come to earth and take on flesh be a baby, grow into adulthood, live a perfect life, and then die in the place of sinners, bearing on his perfect shoulders the wrath due you and I. For every sin we have committed, are committing, and will commit. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus atoned for your sins to reconcile you to God because you could not. That's mercy. That's grace. That's love unfathomable. And even while we were yet sinners, God took the initiative to send his son. Jesus took the initiative to take on flesh and bear your sins on the cross. And the Holy Spirit took the initiative to come to you and convict your heart and show you the truth of the gospel. And when he comes to you, 
and shows these truths to your heart, the question is, will you kneel before him? Give Jesus your allegiance and thus be born again or not? Those are the only two choices. There's no third way. Will you be made new or not? Will you thus have living hope or not? Will your heart be therefore reordered or not? This is what's at stake here. And the stakes could not be higher. But see, without the resurrection, you realize the wrath-bearing cross is to no effect. Do you realize this? If Jesus dies on behalf of humanity but stays in the grave, there's no new birth. Without the resurrection, there's no living hope. In fact, there's no hope at all. Which brings us to point number two. Point number two, living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, and this is all through, do you see that language? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from out of the dead. Hope then, living hope, only can come by means of Jesus' resurrection. That's what he's saying. Everything we've talked about in terms of Christ's wrath and sin-bearing, substitutionary death for us rebels, all hinges, do you see, on whether or not he is raised bodily from the dead. If he is still in the tomb, that means that God did not accept his sacrifice. It means our greatest enemy, death, has not been defeated. It means our sins have not been atoned for. It means we're hopeless. It means there is no new birth. Everything hinges on whether or not Jesus rises from the dead. Everything. Living hope rests entirely on the fact of the empty tomb. If there is no resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ, well then, as Paul said, we could eat and drink for tomorrow we die, and then there's nothing. If there's no resurrection, not only is there no hope for the future, there's no hope for the present. Because this is what we need to see in Peter's language of living hope. There's not just hope in the way that we typically think of hope. This is an active, ongoing, living hope. But understand, this is not hope in the way that we typically think of hope where it may or may not happen. Isn't that how we typically think of hope? We say, I hope. We don't know if it's going to happen. When Peter says living hope, he's saying certain hope, true hope, lasting hope, sure hope, real hope hope, which is altogether different than a deceptive, empty, false hope that the world would offer us. When we say something, say of something, I hope, we're communicating that we wish it would happen a certain way, but we're not sure. Will your favorite team win the championship this year? If I asked you, you'd say, I don't know, but I hope. <laughs> I don't know, but I hope so. Will you get the job you've always wanted? You don't know, but you hope. Will you get into the college you want? You don't know, but you hope so. Or all week, I've looked at the weather and asked, will it rain Saturday and Sunday? I don't know. The meteorologists don't know. But I hope that it wouldn't, right? In other words, hope, as we typically think about it, is a desire for some future thing which we are uncertain of attaining or occurring. It's not the way Peter thinks about hope. When Peter says in verse 13, hope completely in the grace of to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He does not mean we should desire it, but we should be certain of it. The, the, the coming of Christ is, not a matter of, is a matter of complete 
confidence for all the writers of the New Testament. Our hope rests in him as a matter of a fact. We aren't hoping it will all work out the way Jesus said. We know it will. And how can we know? Because the resurrection of Jesus out of the dead. Whatever else we might rest our hope in in life, it's uncertain and transient. Do you know that? Not only that, but it will always threaten to fail you or be taken from you. Put your hope in relationships and they'll inevitably, (coughs) inevitably disappoint you or fail you or not meet your expectations. Put your hope in your job and you can be laid off. Or it could turn out to not be what you expected. Put your hope in your bank account and it could dry up or be taken. Hope in your stuff and it could be destroyed. Put your hope in what people think of you and they'll find out you're not what they thought or expected or wanted or you'll fail them. And then what? And then what? What happens when you place all of your hopes in the things of earth and they inevitably fail you? Or what happens when you fail? You'll be ruined. You should be ruined. You'll be undone. You'll be like the people that Franco mentioned. You'll lash out or you'll just give up. Or you'll slide into depression. What if you place your hope in someone who cannot be taken? What if your hope was living and certain, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you? Then you could live life enjoying things and people without using them or causing them to bear the weight of all your hopes. Then when trials come, you can endure with hopeful lament, knowing that God is sovereign and good, and he'll make everything right in the end. Charles Spurgeon, you know I couldn't get away with not quoting him, right? He said of this, it's called a living hope because it is imperishable. Other hopes will fade like withering flowers. The hopes of the rich, the boasts of the proud, all these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. The hope of the greatest monarch has been crushed before our eyes. He set up the standard of victory too soon and has seen it trailed in the mire. There's no unwaning hope beneath the changeable moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. All of this is living and certain because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's done just secure your future, but enables you to live for something greater in the present, don't you see? Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything. So the question for you is not whether you like Christianity, whether you think it will work for you, whether it fits in your life or whether it's desirable, whether you like it or not, or whether it is in agreement with your value. The question is this, is it true? Did the creator God come and take on flesh and live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and rise bodily from the dead or not? And since it's true, we stake everything on those facts. We have real and certain and true and lasting hope. Don't you see this hope is not just for the future, but it's for right now. Do you see that? See what Peter says in verses 4 through 9? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's an inheritance kept safe and guarded in heaven for those who are born again. And this, verse 6, we greatly rejoice now. Even when, do you see what he says? We go through various trials 
then our faith is refined like gold, knowing that in the end, we will behold our truest and greatest prize, Jesus himself, who, though we haven't seen him, we love him and rejoice right now with joy inexpressible. Do you see? If you knew, for example, for certain that you had $30 million coming to you next year, you'd live different right now, wouldn't you? You'd be more generous, you'd be less stressed, you'd hold on to things with a looser grip. And why? Because you know what's coming will make up for all you do now. Because you know something more is in store for you to look forward to, so you'd live very differently. In an infinitely greater way, says Peter, our hope for the future, secured by the resurrection of Christ, must color how we live right now. Joel Green says in his commentary this way, for Peter, the character of the future casts its shadow backward, impinging resolutely on the present. Knowing God's future changes everything, for it alienates those who share this hope from those who do not. It generates conflict around what has ultimate value, and it provides the foundation for appropriate response in the present, continued faithfulness, and especially joy. When we go through trials, inevitably difficult things in life, and they say, I hope everything works out in the end. Have you said that? But what Peter is saying, no matter what happens in life, I know for certain that it will work out in the end. And we might ask, why, Peter? And he says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which ensures my own future resurrection in his likeness. Peter rested all of his hopes on this. All of his eggs were in this basket, and all of it hinged on Jesus. It didn't hinge on his circumstances. It didn't hinge on who he was or what he could do. It didn't hinge on his ability or intellect or standing in the world or possessions. He banked everything on who? On Jesus. Think about how far Peter has come. You ever think about this? Think about Monday, Thursday, Last Supper on Thursday of Holy Week, right? The night before Jesus is crucified, they're sitting having their last meal together. Remember this? And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And Peter says, <laughs> Jesus says, all of you, one will betray me, all of you will abandon me. So Peter says, if everyone abandons you, remember that? I won't. These jabronis might, but I'm not going to. I'll go with you to prison or even death. And then Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me tonight. And Peter says, even if I must die, I will not deny you. What's Peter doing there? He's banking on, he's resting on, his confidence is in, his love for Jesus, not Jesus' love for him. His ability to hold on to Jesus, not Jesus' ability to hold on to him. So you fast forward and Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, and Peter like cuts this dude's ear off. Do you remember that? Because he's thinking he's protecting Jesus. But Jesus rebukes him, and Peter was trying to come with his own way, right? He missed the fact that Jesus came to die. He didn't need Peter trying to circumvent the plan. So Jesus is arrested, and what does Peter do? Do you remember? Takes off, right? He flees. Then he's warming his hands by a fire. And a little girl comes up to him. Mister, you were with Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Then another little girl says, some, some, says to someone nearby, hey, that guy was with Jesus. And Peter hears it, and he says, I don't know the man. Then later, someone else comes up to him and says, hey, you were with Jesus. Your accent betrays you. And Peter says for the third time, I don't know him. Then the rooster crows, and you know, Luke adds 
that Jesus looked at Peter and Peter caught his eye right after he denied him. Peter did that because he was trying, why did he deny him? He was trying to save his own neck, wasn't he? He wasn't willing to be arrested or killed for this. Peter's hope had rested in Peter's ability to hold fast to Jesus, his ability to love Jesus, his own idea of how the kingdom should work, and he failed. You imagine the pain and the shame he must have felt after confidently swearing he'd never deny Jesus to denying him and then looking Jesus in the eye. But then fast forward to Galilee, Jesus is resurrected, and he's making breakfast for his friends, and he sits across from Peter and he looks him in the eye again. Do you love me? Three times he says it. Same amount of times that Peter denied Jesus. He asked if he loves Jesus. Here, Peter does not make excuses. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't say, well, yes, I failed to love you, but you have to understand that. Nor does he say, yes, I denied you, but what about all this other cool stuff I did for you? He says simply, yes, I love you. And Jesus restores him, forgives him. He gives him responsibility. And now Peter has been confronted by the resurrection power. And for the rest of his life, he will bank on Jesus' work for him, not in his own ability. The resurrection changed everything for Peter. To where when he says in verse 6 that we can rejoice through fiery trials, he meant it and he embodied it. In fact, tradition has it that Peter was arrested by Rome with his wife and they were to be executed by crucifixion. And as they led Peter's wife away to die, Peter said to her, remember the Lord. And then he himself was crucified upside down. Why was Peter able to go from bravado that trusted in himself and a coward who was afraid of what would happen to him on account of his association with Jesus to someone who could live for Christ, boldly proclaiming the gospel and then die for it because he now had living hope on account of the resurrection of his Lord. Don't you see that Peter's life had been completely and utterly changed to where he didn't just have hope in the future, he had hope in this life too? And why? He rested it all on Jesus and his resurrection, which promised Peter's own future resurrection. Peter saw the present in light of the certain future in Christ, and everything about his life was altered in light of Christ. Do you realize that the resurrection of Christ is God declaring to us that the new world that is to come has broken into the world now? The new birth then means that you will be both in this world, but belonging to the world to come. And that changes everything about how you live, shouldn't it? It has to. You know, during the first several centuries of the church, following Christ's resurrection and ascension, there were several pandemics in cities around the Roman Empire. And they were devastating. Well, a historian named Kyle Harper who was uh, written on uh, ancient pandemics, he was interviewed and he was asked how Christianity grew and thrived during those dark times. This is what he said. For Christians, it was a positive program. This life was always meant to be transitory and just part of a larger story. What was important to the Christian was to orient one's life towards the larger story, the cosmic story, the story of eternity. They did live in this world, experienced pain, and loved others, but the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life as just one of the stories in which they lived. The hidden map was this larger picture. 
Tim Keller adds, Christians view even the hardest circumstances as part of a history guided by God at every turn toward not merely some kind of afterlife, but towards the resurrection of our bodies and souls into new remade heavens and earth. And all this hope centers on one explosive event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection says that there is a world to come that has broken into the present, and because Jesus is alive, Hope is living, and you could be alive in him through the new birth. The resurrection says that the pains of life are temporary. Isn't life hard? Isn't life hard? Can it be unimaginably painful? Will we suffer loss and hardship in this life? Won't things on this earth that we tend to put our hopes in fade or fall apart? Won't there be times when we're frustrated and confused? Won't we be helpless sometimes and alone? Don't you see that the resurrection tells us there is more to life than what you see? And that because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done and because of what the Holy Spirit has done in rising him from the dead, that we have the promise that there will be a time when there is no pain, no suffering or disease or loss or crying, no frustration, no hardship, no death. But friend, without the resurrection, when life is hard, it's just hard. When life is confusing, there will never be an answer. When we are hurt and suffer loss, there's no redemption. When there is injustice and the weak are oppressed by the powerful, there's no promise that evil will be vanquished and they'll receive their just desserts. When there are tears, there's no God-man at the helm of the universe who can sympathize with your sorrow. That is, if there's no resurrection... But there is a resurrection of Jesus and of us if we are born again. And this changes everything, now and forever. You know, one of the best scenes in the book by J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, happens at the very end of the book, after Frodo and his companion Sam finally complete this arduous journey, and the ring had finally been destroyed at Mount Doom. Evil had been vanquished. Everything could now be set to right. Well, Sam falls asleep from exhaustion, and when he wakes up, he sees the wizard Gandalf, who th he thought was dead. And Gandalf asks Sam how he feels. And I want you to listen to what Tolkien writes. He says, but Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? He asked. What an incredible question. He doesn't ask whether good things will now happen and become true. He asks, will every sad thing come untrue? And the answer for those who are born again is a resounding yes. The Christian recognizes more than anyone that there's something very wrong with this world. But the Christian sees in the resurrection of Jesus that the promise has been made that every sad thing will be made untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be ch changed. It's not simply that good things will happen. It's that the brokenness will be undone. It's that everything will be made so new, so glorious, that we won't even think about the pain and sin and brokenness that we endured in this world. This is real hope. This is lasting hope. This is sure hope. This is certain hope. This is living hope. This is a hope 
placed in Jesus and his resurrection out of the dead, which causes the believer to look at whatever they may face in life and say, I know this isn't the final word because my Jesus lives and so will I, even if I die. Friend, let me ask you, same questions I asked at the start. What do you place your hope in? At this very moment, what are you hoping for in life? What bears the weight of your hope in life and is thus what you're truly living for? Some of you are here trusting in something other than the resurrection to provide you hope. That's true of some of you. You are resting your hope in all these uncertain things that we've listed this morning. Your job, your spouse, your kids, your possessions, your bank account, your reputation, your appearance, your ability to maintain control, your relationships, and all these other things that are unsure and transitory. But don't you see that they can't bear the weight of your hopes? And deep down, I bet you know that. You know, many, many years ago, there's a team of mountain climbers began a dangerous descent on one of the peaks in the Swiss Alps. And the first man in line lost his foothold and slipped over the edge. And the next two men were dragged after him, but the experienced climbers above braced themselves and stood firm to bear the shock. But when the rope ran its length, rather than bearing the weight, it snapped like a string. Just snapped. Horrified, the climbers saw their friends fall to their deaths on the glaciers 4,000 feet below. For half an hour, the other three stayed immobilized by fear. Finally, they nerved themselves to continue their perilous descent. Hours later, they arrived in this city to tell their sad story. And when the climbers examined the rope to find out why it failed, they were shocked. True Alpine climb Club rope has a red strand through it, but this one did not. It was a weak substitute. Every other hope beside the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a dead hope in that it cannot bear your weight. Like a string, they will inevitably snap. And if you're trusting them to hold you, you'll ultimately perish. We not only will not see hope ever realized in this, because even if we get what we want, we'll constantly go to the next thing to say, I hope about, but nothing in this world can bear the weight of our eternity. Don't you see? So what are you hoping in? To those who do not know and trust Christ, where do you locate hope? Maybe you're here, and let's be honest, quite frankly, you didn't really want to come today. Family obligations, traditions, things like this got you here today, but maybe this is a divine appointment. For you, do I have good news for you if you're not trusting in Christ? Not if your hope remains in anything besides Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. If your hope is in this life, anything in this world, there's ultimately no hope. When life is hard, when it's confusing, when things you put your hope in fail to materialize or are taken from you or aren't at all what you thought, what do you do? Where do you go? You may have hope in something, but it isn't living hope. It's not sure hope. It's not true hope. Trust in Christ today. Find in Him living hope. See that the creator of the universe knew you would try to find hope in this fallen world. And He knew you would fail to find hope in this fallen world. 
And he loved you to such an extent that he was willing to come down and take on flesh, live the life you failed to live, die the death that you should have died, atoning for every single sin, absorbing the wrath of God. And then he conquered the grave and rose bodily. And he stands before you today, offering you living, real, true, sure hope. All of it's found in him. Would you go to him today? Would you see his beauty? Would you see his truth? If you feel your heart being stirred just now, and you don't know what your next step should be, we'd, we'd love to help you. After service, myself, the other pastors, Daniel, Nathan, will be available. Come and talk to us. We'll help you take your next step. Above all, trust in Christ today and receive the new birth and living hope. Now, for you who are, have trusted Christ, let me ask you. Same question, where's your hope? Is the resurrection of our Lord enough for you, or have you been bouncing from interim hope to interim hope looking for something in the here and now? Perhaps you've gotten off track and the resurrection has no impact on your daily life. What hope in this world has replaced this living hope? Are you allowing your circumstances to dictate your hope? Are you banking on your abilities and your record and your stuff, your reputation, your impressiveness, or on Christ's ability and Christ's record and Christ's work and Christ's promises? Have you been resting your hope in the wrong place? Christian, it will rob you joy. It will cause your meaning in life to be tied to transient things that you may lose and you'll never have rest. But if you rest your hope in the resurrection, it will be a living, sure, certain real hope that will energize you and give you true joy right now, no matter what success and defeats are, no matter what blessings and trials are, no matter what the pains and losses are, because you know that in the end, neither the good things nor the bad things have the final word because your hope is wrapped up in a person who is seated in the heavenly places and he's defeated sin, hell, and death so that you not only could be assured of the future, but you could live for something transcendent in the present. Because you know he will make every sad thing come untrue. So when life is incredibly painful or confusing or lonely, when we suffer loss and hardship and the unexplainable, we know that, verse 6, it's only for a little while. And these struggles will be used to refine us into the likeness of Christ, into something more precious than gold. Whatever your circumstance right now, no matter what you're going through, whether you're a Christian or not, go to Christ today and find living hope, anew or the first time.